Welcome to the Mac PFD Sparkle podcast. This is Ruth Chen, and in the Sparkle subseries, we'll bring you shorter segments released in between our longer Spark episodes. We'll have new and exciting interviews with professionals from across the world, helping you to achieve your personal and professional goals as a healthcare educator, researcher, leader, or practitioner at any stage of your career. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this episode of the Mac PFD Sparkle Podcast. Today, Teresa Chan speaks with Dr. Vivian Lewis about her experiences directing a mentorship group at Rochester University. Dr. Lewis reflects on what it means to be someone's mentor and the benefits of guiding early career faculty and students. Okay, hello everyone. This is Teresa Chan and I'm here with a new guest and she's from afar, but not that far, Rochester actually. Dr. Vivian Lewis is here with me, and she has been recommended to me by some of the other guests on the show as someone we got to talk to. And so Vivian, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you. I am thrilled to be here today. This is quite an honor. I am on the faculty at the University of Rochester Medical School in the department of OBGYN. My main role now is with our Clinical Translational Science Institute, where I direct the Mentor Development Working Group, which is a group that oversees mentoring for a graduate student program with trainees, medical students, and some early career faculty. So that is the main thing that I'm doing now. Over the years, I've had a variety of roles, uh, principally at the University of Rochester, both clinical and administrative. And all of those things have gotten me to a place where I've become very interested in mentoring. All right, great. And so tell me a little bit about what mentorship means to you. There's so many definitions out there, but what does it mean to be someone's mentor, in your opinion? So I think that in my opinion, mentoring means somebody who helps you learn They can help you learn either through sort of personal domains, psychosocial domains, career development domains, or content, you know, the kind of nuts and bolts of your discipline and what you have to master in order to be a competent physician, educator, researcher, administrator. And so when you think about it, all of those domains matter throughout one's entire professional life. They usually are supported through more than just one person. And through more than one sort of title, not just the official mentor, but also can be your friend, your advisor, your sponsor, all of those things come to mind when most people think about mentoring. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's obviously when you hit the nerdy kind of like books and literature out there, there's probably different definitions. That's why I wanted to understand a little bit better what you define it as, because some people would say that, you know, sponsorship is actually unique, that teaching is actually unique. I mean, I'm more of a pragmatist. I think that when you're mentoring someone, you might hold different roles at once. And so that's the reality of things. But yeah, just that's cool. That's what you think. And let's say you were going to mentor me. What are some of the basics that you would do when you get started with someone? Like, what are some things that you could do? I too am a pragmatist and I always kind of open up by asking people. I do a lot of mentor education and I always open up with that same sort of question. What does it mean to you to be a mentor? Because that, of course, helps me identify what they're interested in talking about at the time. But I think that for me, if I'm starting out mentoring someone, I want to know a lot about their motivation. 
Because I think that that's really a key driver for mentee engagement and persistence, satisfaction. How happy are they going to be with our mentoring relationship? What are they going to accomplish? And by accomplish, it's not so much what I want them to accomplish, it's what they want to accomplish. They have to identify those goals for it to have meaning and really for them to do an excellent job. I really think that's a really key point. So really centering the mentorship relationship around the mentee. And I mean, I think about myself, some analogies I've heard of that I think are effective are the idea of being a mirror being someone who can reflect back at someone else, that you're there to listen and then process it and then reframe it in a different way for them. Maybe better after example would be mirror with a filter on it. Maybe it's like the zoom when you put like the filter that makes you look with less wrinkles and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, an Instagram filter, I don't know. <laughs> it's that you're, you're, yes. Exactly. So it's, it's the idea of being able to show them a different version of maybe what they're seeing so that they can reprocess the information because sometimes we get stuck in our ruts. And we see ourselves, we get down on ourselves disproportionately, we have imposter syndrome, or maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves and getting a little too pompous, a little too arrogant, like the mentor gives those outside insights to be able to help us really get a sense of where we actually are. Yes. And I think that really good mentors do a great idea of helping people understand their own motivation through that lens that is both realistic, but also aspirational. What does my best self look like? You know, maybe this is what I look like now, right now with all my wrinkles and, uh, you know, acne, but what does my best self look like and how can I achieve that best self and get in touch with that best self? And so I think that helping people understand their motivation, I think a lot about a specific kind of motivational meta theory called self-determination theory. And that is just a kind of way to help me organize my thoughts around helping people think about their motivation. So it does include certainly those goals. It includes those goals and what we would call autonomously chosen goals. It includes establishing a relationship. I think that everybody who talks about mentoring, nerdy, pragmatic, or otherwise, recognizes that that uh, relationship is really at the, at the core of excellent mentoring. And it includes competence, being able to be effective at what you're doing and helping the person do that. So you talk about imposter syndrome, getting down on yourself unnecessarily, but also, you know, what is an optimal level of challenge that you can help this person see such that they will realize their achievements, feel good about them and keep going. All right. That's great. So tell me a little bit more now about how we can actually, you know, in the moment, how do you make those decisions about where you want to go with a mentee? Like, so you've done the prep work, you've got that frame of mind that you're kind of like that mentor mindset, I think is what you've been describing. Like, you know, what's your rationale for doing it, why you're doing it, how you're going to do it, centering it on the trainee. Those are all great tips for that mental preparation you have going in. But like the mechanics now, you're in a session, you're staring awkwardly across the table in the post-pandemic era, or you're staring through a Zoom in the pandemic era, and you need to do something. How do you even make that start? Who makes the first move? I think that depends on the context, but who makes the first move? You're the mentor, you're in the driver's seat. I think you want to start by checking in, by listening to the person. What is top of mind for them? What are their main concerns? 
you talk about mentee-centered mentoring. So yes, you want to know what is top of mind for them. And you want to be sure that you touch base on all of the kind of important elements and make sure that you accomplish what it is you wanted to accomplish during that conversation so that they don't just leave feeling like, okay, I jumped on my mentor for an hour, we got something done, or it was just a gripe session. You want to leave the conversation with some goals that you agree on. And so as the mentor, you have to constantly kind of, not constantly, but periodically perhaps reframe the conversation, bring it back to the goals of what we were going to get done today, leave the mentee with some work to do and have them kind of keep a reflective maybe journal or some kind of way to document where they are. So you have some some big picture goals that you've chosen. We like to use an independent uh, development uh, plan or research plan for everybody, all our mentees, where they actually write their goals. I know a lot of people have had those upended over 2020. Those are completely, (laughs) or perhaps let's say those are a work in progress for most people, and they should be. But to have those big picture goals so you can constantly go back, or not constantly, periodically go back and look and measure your progress so you can see how you're doing. You want to maybe think about whether those goals are still relevant, and you want to make sure that the mentee is doing okay, more in a well-being sense. Certainly in the pandemic era, how are you managing, you know, day to day? Because many people working remotely or working face-to-face, they have new stresses. This is a new era. This is unfamiliar to all of us. So how are you managing your workload? How do you feel in terms of your colleagues and your patients? You know, how are they coping and what effect is that having on you? And do you think that you and I, mentor and mentee, connect enough? And is there something that you would want to change about our relationship? Those are the high points, and they kind of fit within that self-determination theory framework of competence, autonomy, and relatedness, those basic needs that I think always need to be satisfied in any mentor-mentee relationship. And so I always try to think about those in every session, even if it's just as a placeholder. We're going to get back to this next time, maybe. This is something we haven't talked about. I want you to think about it. So yes, that's that was kind of how I frame my approach. Yeah, I really like that. The SDT is something that I have used in various forms especially around this mentorship part, especially of junior faculty. That is something that I think it does really resonate with that target group. It kind of reminds us that we have to give people a chance to define their careers because it's, you know, it's their careers. And as mentors, we can't override it. And so whether it's junior faculty or senior residents or PhD student or postdoc, I think it's 100% that transition into their best selves that we're trying to optimize. And I really like that phrase. And it, it brings out the best thing in all of us to think how we can then potentiate someone else's best. I think as new faculty starting out, oftentimes they can feel overwhelmed by the choices that are available to them. And Choices and not choices, oftentimes there are a lot of assignments that they have to fulfill and they can get so caught up in doing all of those things, they lose sight of why did they choose this field in the first place. And checking in with a mentor can help them think about that. It can help them keep going. It can prevent burnout, ultimately. 
And it helps them feel that somebody cares. They're not just there to, you know, accomplish just the chairman's mandated, you know, these many clinics have to be followed and this many students have to be taught. So that's great. But also I care about you and your well-being and what is it you wanted to get done and how satisfying is that to you? Because you're not going to stick with an academic career unless you feel like some of your needs are being met too, not just the needs of your institution or your department. That hits at home because I think that a lot of the time, you know, they talk about academia, the institution, the organization is always going to take more and is always going to want more. You can never do enough. And that can be a recipe for burnout. So having a mentor that can flag this, that you need to do this for you, that you need to have a filter to empower you to see that, especially when you're more junior and even when you're more mid-career or even when you're senior, right? Having someone that can reflect back to you, but what's in it for you? Like I've got your back. Like I'm in it to say, you need to do this because it has to be something that you want to do. And if you're not interested in doing it, then so be it. And let's find something else for you to do. Or maybe this isn't a good fit altogether. And there are some people that exit academia. There are some people that come back into it. There's so many different ways to get involved with what it is that we do. I do think that it's a mentor's job to help someone see the opportunities for them to engage or to know when they've engaged too much and need to pull back a little bit. Definitely. I think that for me, one reason I went into academia is because there were so many choices. I didn't know. You know, I thought I want to do a little bit of research. I love taking care of patients. I'm also very interested in kind of bigger societal needs and that kind of social justice lens that medicine can create. Great, but that's too much. You know, you have to at times pursue parts of that or you'll, you'll just be spinning your wheels. Yeah, and I think that generalizes across not just medicine, there's nursing, rehabilitation sciences, research life, teaching life, right? Like, there's always more and more the institution, whatever role you've been, you've been hired to, I think of academia and the organization as something that has aspirational goals, but is almost like a bottomless pit of work effort. And we can all chip in and it'll fill that hole a little bit transiently. But because of the way academia is set up, there's always more, right? There's always more to do. There's always new ideas. There's always someone else coming up with fresh ideas and a new perspective. And then we've got new hires. And it's really exciting to be fostering some of those people. But it's still that bottomless pit and we can never fill it. And that's the great privilege of working in academia because there's always new ideas to chase and new territory to explore and be able to actually engage in these new ideas and new innovations is one of the big thrills of being in academia. And yet, you know, there's always more papers to publish. There's always more papers to edit, always more students to teach and supervise. And so it's definitely a give and take and trying to find that sweet spot I think in the age of the pandemic, it's really reared its head as to how we can definitely just feel the pressure and then not ever really be happy with the successes that we have. I think that's really, really true. And I think that it also reminds us all that we need to have a life outside of medicine. And as mentors, we need to recognize, certainly in the context of the pandemic, we need to recognize that that life outside of medicine may have become a little more challenging in this time of pandemic era, and that reframing what is a realistic goal for you is sometimes necessary. 
The other thing that your comments make me think about is how you've spoken about on some of your other podcasts about the importance of having a group of mentors, not just one person. So maybe you have that mentor that helps you publish a specific paper, finish a protocol for teaching a particular skill. Great. But that doesn't mean that that person is in it to to help you navigate the waters of promotion or whether your career is going in the right direction writ large or whether the dynamics on your team are necessarily optimal. So I think that taking a little time for self-reflection is very important. I know that many, many medical centers now in this last year have tried to adapt to the pandemic by creating resources to promote wellness and mindfulness, and that so many of those resources have been helpful to faculty who just need to kind of take a deep breath in order to function where we're only human. So I'm going to pivot now. Because as two minority women who have been through academia at this point and healthcare academia at that, are there any special considerations when you're mentoring women, men, people that are non-binary? Are there different considerations that you've noticed over the years when you mentor one or the other or both genders? Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up because really as a minority woman, that is how I first became really specifically interested in this area of mentoring. I came up for promotion to full professor and kind of had an aha moment about how many of my colleagues, the people who were like me, had not progressed to this level. And it wasn't for lack of hard work, lack of knowledge, lack of skills, lack of commitment. It was perhaps that they didn't understand the ins and outs. They didn't have a mentor who cared about them to help them get going with it. And they were isolated in their area, or they wanted to pursue areas that the the institution did not value as much. You know, they wanted to take care of those really underserved patients, which took a little more time and different skills. and, And so they didn't appear to be as maybe productive. So I think that understanding those experiences got me thinking, how can we do a better job of mentoring women, mentoring underrepresented minorities. So that the institution, one thing is the institution is losing out on a lot of talent. That just that plain and simple, people enter academia with high idealistic goals that they're gonna change the system and the system fails them. And the system ultimately is the loser, in my opinion in that scenario. So in academic medicine, I think that, and I actually did a study with some colleagues in clinical psychology and self-determination theory. Richard Ryan, one of the founders of self-determination, helped me to put together a framework for mentoring uh, or and teaching mentoring, the CARES model, competence, autonomy, relatedness, E for equity, and S for structure. So all of the things that we just talked about, the relationship built on trust, the optimal challenge that helps scaffold a learner into greater and greater levels of accomplishment, and the volitional choices, all of those things are just as relevant for women and minorities. And in fact, our research showed that mentors who were most attentive to the CARES system, those mentees were more satisfied especially women, lower levels of burnout. Equity, 
how many people do we know that we feel at lots of studies, many, many studies showing that women are not paid as much as men. And that is so true in academic medicine as it is in industry and every walk of life. And that just has to change. We're not going to keep giving 120% and getting paid 80%. (laughs) People leave. They get discouraged. They've had it. You know, that's definitely a demotivator. So finding ways to make the system equitable as the mentor, making sure that your mentee feels that their efforts, even if it's not pay, are their efforts recognized equally to those of their male colleagues or their well-represented from a racial uh, ethnic perspective as their well-represented colleagues. So fairness and equity. Structure, how clear are the criteria and are they selectively applied, those criteria for promotion, or are they applied across the spectrum, no matter who you are? What kinds of feedback do we give people? That needs to be structured in. I know so many underrepresented people who say, no one told me they didn't think I was doing a good job. They just acted like everything's fine. Meanwhile, the mentor who may be acting more as a sponsor, unwittingly for unconscious bias reasons, they're taking aside their white male colleague and saying, you could really go far in this if you would just do X, Y, Z. And they don't even think about taking aside the minority colleague to give them the same kinds of uh, feedback, support, or sponsorship that would help them move their careers along. So the competence, autonomy, relatedness, equity, and structure, all of those things, that acronym really, really plays out, I think, across the spectrum of especially underrepresented colleagues. But I think it resonates with everyone, but I think especially with underrepresented groups. And starting with the relationship, that relationship has to be built on trust Let's face it, if you feel like you're discriminated against or you have that sense that you're just not quite being treated fairly, you're not necessarily going to trust the feedback that you get and you may get overly defensive and that sets up a bad dynamic. So as the mentor, you want to be extra attentive to the trust part of the relationship. Yeah, it certainly resonates with me as to like, think about some of my best mentors and what that relationship is built upon and trust is definitely the, the cornerstone of that. And I really like how in cares, R is in the middle, right? Because it's like the fulcrum. It's the keystone yeah. to it all, right? And so without it, everything else just falls apart. And so if you think about that analogy, you think of almost like cares, like a curved arch with the R being kind of in the middle. The arch can't hold if there's no keystone, so. All right. To be honest, this has been a fantastic conversation and clearly you're a wealth of knowledge in this area. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to connect. Do you have any final thoughts on any pearls for those people who have been in the mentorship game for a while, have been doing this for a while? What's something that you think that they should all bear in mind? Because I think we've talked about when you're getting started, we've talked a little bit about you know the ongoing practice of it. But for those people who, you know, like, they're like, should I keep mentoring? I'm not, I'm not sure if this is for me anymore. Like, I'm getting a little burnt out myself. I'm too busy. I've got a lot on my plate, you know, and they're trying to decide if mentorship is something that they should continue. How would you sell to them that this is something that they should pick up again and dust off? Oh, that's a great question. I don't often get asked that. So I think, yes, if you are a mentor who's been in the game for a long time, 
and you're just wondering, should I bother with this? I think thinking about your own motivation is really important. So I think there, you know, there are certainly the extrinsic motivators. Were you doing it because you were assigned by your chair or director or whomever and something you felt like you had to do, you know, then letting it go is, is fine. If you don't have to do it, don't do it. Or are you doing it because it speaks to you? It speaks to your heart. It speaks to your values. And how does it speak to your values? Are you someone who loves to educate, loves to see that next generation grow and thrive? Do you feel like you have something to give as a mentor? And is that satisfying to you? Then those would be really good reasons to continue to do it, to pick it up and pursue it again. Did you have an unsatisfying relationship as a mentor or a few that turned you off? And maybe that's because your mentees weren't as engaged as they might be. And what kind of relationship did you have with them? Did you explore what was important to them and tend to their needs as mentees? So I think we all need mentors. We all need more mentors. And I think that there's now, there's so many tools to learn how to be an excellent mentor. You have all those podcasts that you've done yourself that are wonderful ways for people to think about, why is it I do this? Is this satisfying to me? And, and how might it be satisfying to me? And should I pursue it again? Maybe it can be a little more selective about whom I mentor and how I mentor them. So that is satisfying for me. And also the mentee gets something out of it. It has to be a win-win or it's not worth it. That's a great final thought. I mean, I think the only addendum I would share is that maybe it's time to also seek a mentor yourself. Because I think that people forget and they're mentoring the whole world. And then they're like Atlas with the whole world on their shoulders. And really what you need at that point is not that you need to stop mentoring, is that maybe you need support yourself. And maybe you need to think about how you can move this forward and get the help that you need. Maybe it's about leaning on some of your apprentices who have now maybe become associate profs themselves or full profs themselves and say, hey, I've got a lot of mentees, but I can't do it all, right? How do you involve a community and build that base around the people that we need to support, but some of those people are ourselves. So thinking about that, I think is the only other thing I would possibly add. So thank you so much. And this has been a great conversation. It's been an honor and a lot of fun. So thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.